Welcome to the Lead More Podcast. I'm your host, John T. Meyer. Lead More Podcast is the show where we sit down with leaders of today to help inspire and create more leaders for tomorrow. Now I want to pause on that line. I always say leaders of today to help inspire more leaders of tomorrow, right? You remember that if you listen to the show? Well, today we're going to zig a little bit and talk about leaders of yesterday to help inspire the leaders of tomorrow. And how are we doing that? Well, I invited Dr. Ben Jones onto the show. And Dr. Ben is the state historian and the director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. He also served in the Air Force for 23 years. And so Ben is a historian. He has his PhD in history. He's been a professor. And now he's sort of the keeper of South Dakota history. It's his job to make sure it's preserved, it's taught, it's shared, documented in both the present and the past, especially a lot of the past. And so I actually asked him what that means and why, why should we learn from history? I have my own idea, but I wanted his opinion. But particularly, I asked him to come in on this episode and share with us sort of the, the top five South Dakota historical leaders. Who are your favorite leaders that have helped shape our state today? And what can we learn from them to be leaders for tomorrow? And oh my gosh, this was so much fun. We could have gone three times longer easily. When you hear Ben, and if you've heard him before, he's incredible. He knows his stuff, obviously. It's his job to know dates and facts, right? But he's next level in terms of all the stuff he knows about South Dakota, about these people, about these places, about these events. And so I just sat back, asked a few questions, and I learned a ton. I'm going to be sending this one to my dad for sure. If you have a history buff, World War II fan, someone like that in your family, make sure they listen to this episode. It's a little bit different than a typical episode, but that's what I wanted to do. And I think you're going to like it. So as he shared that really great Mark Twain quote, that history doesn't always repeat itself, but it sounds the same or it rhymes, I think. And I'm going to screw that up, but I'm going to let him say it to you. And that's what we're learning from here is how can we learn from these leaders of the past to help more leaders for tomorrow. So with that, let's get right into it. Dr. Ben Jones. Well, welcome to another episode of the Lead More podcast. I'm here with Dr. Ben Jones, the state historian and director of the South Dakota Historical Society. Get that right? South Dakota State Historical Society. Oh, yes. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah. Your, your job is to be good at details, so. Right. Facts. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, and, uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just saying, it's, that's the distinction that we make to keep, because we have a foundation that supports our work as well, and we put the state uh, in the title to be the state government side of things. Got and it. the foundation had, does not have the state in their title okay. in order to be the private side of things. Got it. So, okay. And so tell us briefly, what does, uh, what does that role entail? I know there's the, the museum in Peter. Right, right. I know you do a lot of outreach, whether it be on the public broadcasting mm-hmm. to different groups and events. What else am I missing? Well, the, the society is comprised of uh, five components. So you mentioned the museum. Mm-hmm. Um, which we have. It's, it's a Smithsonian affiliate. It's just a wonderful museum mm-hmm. that, that contains a great deal of South Dakota's history. Um, we also have the state archives, which has the state government support of retaining the state's historical records okay. that once the agency gets done with them, whether it be the Department of Transportation, Department of Health, or, sure. or whatever it may be, the governors and so forth, um, they turn them over to us. That's we, in Pierre as well. And that's in Pierre, yeah. yes. So if you walk out of the museum, you walk across the lobby, that'd be the archives. Okay, yeah, sure. Another part of that building. Okay. 
Down the hall in that same building is a small press that publishes four or five books a year um, dealing with South Dakota's history, or um, we try to do one children's book a year, and those have been pretty uh, well-received over the past. And those are authored by whomever? Those are authored by whomever, people from around the country, uh, and the history books are... um, they have to deal with a subject of South Dakota's history or the Great Plains. Okay. The children's book also need, need to deal with not necessarily history, but something cultural in South Dakota or the mm-hmm. Great Plains. Cool. Um, then, let's see. We talked about the museum, the archives, the press, uh, the South Dakota Historical uh, Preservation Office, or the State Historic Preservation Office, was set up by federal legislation in the 70s. They're celebrating their 50th year. Okay, work. sure. And that is, I guess to put it simply, if there's a building or some kind of structure that needs to be preserved, this office is charged with doing that. So They deem something historical, essentially. Well, they're the go-between between the National Park Service that okay. sets up the rules and regulations by, got it, got it. Some, by the way something may be deemed okay. <laughs> to qualify or not. Um, and they manage that at the state. And the federal law requires that some type of state process be set up to do that. And sure. our State Board of Trustees then makes the formal nomination to the Got National it. Park Service to put it on the list. Okay, interesting. We also have some, um, if you're going to preserve a historic building and let's say you want to redo the windows um, and you want to maintain that that historic look, um, there's opportunity to get a tax, uh, county tax um, uh, relief for a certain amount of time. So we manage that process for okay. the state. And then you may recall that in, 80, in 1989, uh, when gambling was set up in Deadwood, mm-hmm. part of the revenue stream from the gambling, uh, $100,000 every year, Is we can mark? use for grants to, for historic preservation around the state. Oh, very cool. So it's not just Deadwood that gets that. They, they get uh, a fair share, but we also can get award grants sure. to towns around the state from Sisseton to yeah. Fall River County, whatever. Very cool. Um, and then the last office is the Archaeological Research Center, which really does the old history. This is the stuff that goes back 10,000 years or millions mm. of years. Yeah. Um, dinosaur bones. Dinosaur bones, <laughs> right. I don't have a paleontologist on staff, but we do. Uh, if somebody strikes a dinosaur bone on state which property. Which has happened in South which Dakota. Which has happened, yes. We seem to be, unfortunately, uh, a, an exporter of Tyrannosaurus rex <laughs> uh, remains um, that uh, they would the state archaeologist manage, manages the the cultural um, digs, cultural finds, and the work that uh, would go on with projects. Yeah. And there's always construction projects going on. And if they sure. uh, submit a um, a project to the state, and the state says, "Well, you're astride a, a known historic um, cultural landmark." Um, so we'll have to do we some to work to mitigate that. And so the archaeologist and Chupo would be involved in that. Interesting. Yeah. So definitely, you know, we think history, That's but there's some wide uh, departments across right, that field. Right, And kind of everything from publishing books to a bit of a, a piece in the tax process as well. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting that. But. Hmm. Very interesting. And you've, you've had time in the state government, previously Secretary of Education, mm-hmm. and then moved, but you, by trade, are a historian. Right. A PhD in history from the University of Kansas. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we're going to get into the topic of South Dakota leaders, but the one question I did want to ask you as just Dr. Ben is, um, and I think I have my own idea or answer, but I want to hear yours. Why today in 2022 should we study history? 
what, what, what's the, the, the main reason? Well, there's no difference between today and when Julius Caesar was alive, why we would study history. You, you, you know, there's a, there's a common phrase, we, we study, the, uh, study the past in order not to repeat it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, uh, I think we can get more out of the past than that. First off, there's no situation that would be exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a saying attributed to Mark Twain, which I think is pretty close uh, or pretty helpful in that regard. And it's that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme a lot. Mm-hmm. And so in the rhyming of it, what is it that's the same and what is it that's different? And when you start asking questions of your, of your current situation and with some breadth of knowledge about history going back and saying, oh, I'm kind of in a situation like that guy. What did he do? And look at all the bad stuff that happened to him. <laughs> Why did that happen to him? Mm-hmm. And then you start trying to compare. It sounds like a college essay question, but you compare and contrast. Well, he had this and this and this issue to deal with. I have two of those three. Yeah. He may have had other things I don't know about. And I have things I don't know about, you know, the yep. unknown knowns yep, yep. and the known unknowns and all. So, I think when you really can exploit some wisdom from the past is when you begin to ask questions that um, relate to the past, but you can employ in your current situation. Yes. And not the kind of cookie cutter, I shouldn't do that because look what happened to him, and so I should do that. Well, you need to understand why that failed in that situation in the past, and then apply that to the questions that you would ask about today. Yeah, so when history is rhyming... Do you hear it, right? Like, do you decipher yeah, and spot we, it? Yeah, we can often. If you know, you know, you know a lot of history, or even if even uh, whatever high school history you had, you can you can look at a situation. I mean, let's say the situation in Ukraine today. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of. In fact, Putin commemorated it just yesterday. The end of the war in Europe, eighty years ago, yesterday, and for the Soviet Union, uh, the war was referred to as the Great Patriotic War. Uh, I, that is certainly how he wants to frame his invasion of Ukraine today. Sure. Uh, he is, he is, um, misusing in my humble opinion, uh, the lessons from the second world war and the fascists and he's seeing, or whether he really believes his own propaganda or not, but he's seeing that sim- that similar threat. And he's saying, we did it 80 years ago, and we have to do it again. Yeah. Um, there's so many differences that if you just take five minutes and list them off, you know, you could see how that uh, is not applicable at all, uh, or how he couches it. Anyway. Yeah. But from the Ukrainians, you know, they're talking about World War II for them was very, uh, it was very much a war survival. They were being invaded um, from the West, in that case, and and they had to do conventional and unconventional activity and so um they have proven to be able to uh i mean the fact that they've held up this far is astonishing yeah true and uh they they've done so i think largely well and directly inspired by how they handled it 80 years ago Hmm. Um, that's kind of the ethos of what's going on and the fact that a jewish ukrainian is the president now yeah uh just adds a different level of um, reality to that or a different level of attention to that. 
Yeah, so so that example is a great a great example of learning from the lessons of the past, um, mm-hmm. knowing that the situation is obviously different in 2022, mm-hmm. but yet there's still part of what shapes that situation is the, is the history, right? And how people remember that history or seek to abuse it, yeah, use it for their own, yeah. And so then we go back to like, why do we need these books and why do right. we need these records right. so that we can't manipulate right. history? And one thing I try to do with students is get them to think for themselves. I was I, I teach online for SDSU, and I was doing a Zoom call with a student um, a couple of weeks ago, and she she said, "Well, I'd like to know what you think." And I said, "The the point isn't what I think. The point is what do you think? Hmm. You." You ask the questions and you find the evidence. What do you think yeah. about that? You shouldn't know my opinion. That's great. Okay, well, I asked you to come on, and this will be a different episode, but I'm excited for it, to talk about South Dakota, historical South Dakota leaders. Mm-hmm. And we say, I say in the intro to this show that Lead More is about learning from leaders of our past and present to help create more leaders for the future. Well, We've generally interviewed leaders in the present, yeah. and the people who are currently yeah. in their role or recently out of their role, or you know, we're sitting across the table talking to them. So you are our best kind of gateway into some of these leaders who have come from a different era. And so I want to go through sort of, and I gave you, gave you kind of the arbitrary task of like, who are your favorite leaders, some mm-hmm. of the, or maybe some of the most influential leaders. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to sound like a like a morning show segment of like the top five leaders, but <laughs> we'll start with the, uh, that's kind of how I want to do it. So yeah. with some Liberty for you, but sure. the first one that you mentioned, and I've heard of him, I know he's at school named after him is red cloud. Should yes. you start there? Sure. Sure. Let's tell, tell us about red cloud. Sure. Well, red cloud was um, in many respects, a, um, a, a warrior of the first order. He was a, I guess today we would, we would call him a combat veteran. He he rose up through the ranks in his tribe uh, by fighting and uh, prevailing in battles on behalf of the Lakota and mm-hmm. his kind of branch of the Lakota. So Lakota Sioux tribe, um, or well, yeah, the, um, the Lakota Sioux is kind of a is that a broader kind of a redundant term? Uh, two broad terms. The the um, Oglala hmm. uh, yep, would be the more precise term for his tribe. Uh, he led the Oglala in a time when um, the issue with the United States government was kind of balanced by two things. One was, um, well, 1868. We we often talk about the the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. Mm-hmm. There was an earlier treaty of 1851, and that treaty was kind of, I think, both both the United States government and the Oglala and the and the broader Lakota Indians were. Um, uh, ha- both enforcing that treaty was becoming problematic for both sides. So, uh, with the Civil War over and things changing in the West, uh, the United States government um, maintained its desire not to really have. It. The thinking was that the what is today North and South Dakota and a great deal of Nebraska and Mont- Eastern Montana was just desert. Mm. No one was ever going to live there. Yeah. It wasn't going to be useful for farming. The economy was all based on uh, an agricultural economy where farming was, and you could go out and, and get your 120 acres and mm-hmm. live, live your life. Kind of this Jeffersonian ideal of what the American Republic would be. Yep. Go West. Yes. Um, Manifest Destiny is kind of an outgrowth of the war with Mexico, which increases the size of the United States by nearly... Uh, 
probably another 40% or so, California, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona. Yeah. And that land needed to be settled and farmed and worked. And uh, the tribes who were there were dealing with different treaties, um, largely because of, um, well, uh, I could get into the history of Indian <laughs> policy. We'd run yeah, down we'll, that rabbit trail. We'll but, save time, yeah. But, yeah, I think the important thing, though, for, for Red Cloud's position is he knew things needed to shift. He wanted things to change for the Oglala, and the United States also wanted them to change. And so when he fought the United States to a standstill from about 1866 to 1868, oh, wow. um, he successfully, uh, he and a crazy horse and, and some other combat leaders, uh, beat the United States government or United States Army in open combat in a couple of fights, the Fetterman fight and another couple of things. And the United States didn't necessarily want those lands, what is today North and South Dakota. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to be able to get the wagon trains to through, through to Oregon, yeah. which meant a route based based on the Platte River, essentially. But then sure. kind of a, a swing north through what is today Fort Laramie in Wyoming mm-hmm. and up the Bozeman Trail to the gold mines in Montana. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was problematic from Red Cloud's point of view because it was good hunting land in eastern Wyoming and Montana and so forth. But but that they could work out a deal and a treaty was struck to where um, what is essentially West River, South Dakota would be the great Sioux reservation is what they call it. The yep. entirety of the West River. So that yep. included the Black Hills. And then uh, the Oglala, the Sikanju, and the other Lakota tribes, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho could also hunt in the summers in parts of Western Nebraska, Eastern Wyoming, and up into Montana. Buffalo, I assume. Yes, they could range out and hunt yep. buffalo and take the game back into the Great Sioux Reservation, hmm. so the western half of South Dakota. Um, they inked that deal, and then two years later, Congress says, we don't like that deal. And then in 1874, gold is officially kind of discovered. Grant tries to keep the miners out of out of the Black Hills for about 18 months. Um, the Army had been cut severely from after the Civil War, downsized tremendously and so the ability to do that wasn't there and of course the politics behind stopping your own citizens to go into a territory that was considered to be part of the united states was very tough to explain to the american people yeah and it just became too hard to do and so in late 1875 grant decides i'm not going to stop them anymore and they and the army begins to kind of figure out okay how can we keep the oglala in the great sioux reservation and then a few years later, how can we keep the Lakota out of the Black Hills because we want them? Yeah. And so by the 1880s and so forth, all of that's it, more or less the reservations that you see today. Yeah. Look at wow. the map of South Dakota. But Red Cloud and all of that knew, and he'd been to Washington and been to the East Coast. Uh, so he saw, I mean, firsthand, the, for lack of a better term, I mean, the, the 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 civilization that he was going to have to keep the tide back from. And I mm. think he knew, as did Spotted Tail, um, probably the best route is to here to keep our reservations, Compromise. but not to um, forego uh, the choices for our future uh, descendants. And so ultimately over time, it, it takes until the 1920s, Grant wanted citizenship for the Native Americans as soon as he could get it. Okay. But it didn't didn't pan out for that uh, to work that way. But um but Red Cloud during all of that, I think he's 
he's caught. He has the he has the tremendous credibility of being a great warrior for his tribe. He has the credibility with the United States government to bargain faithfully. He has the credibility to tell the United States government that they're not bargaining faithfully, as he does on many occasions. Interesting. And he meets Grant in just in January or so, February of 1869. Grant had just been sworn in. Well, no, they did it in March of the year in those days. So I think, yeah, early okay. in Grant's presidency, he meets Grant in Washington. He's impressed with Grant. He, he likes uh, the way things are going to head. And so he goes back to Pine Ridge and, um, or his agency at the time and uh, thinks that things will be about as good as he can get them. Hmm. Um, and then as things develop over time, um, the Episcopalians get the nod to work on Pine Ridge. He doesn't, he would rather have the Catholics. He makes that known to the president and to the Indian agency. I, I like Father DeSmet and these other black robes, these Jesuits. Oh, sure. He, he had a preference for them for whatever reason. I don't know that it's completely clearer why that was, but anyway, hmm. he's quoted as saying he preferred the Catholics, and he, okay. was, he was told it was going to be the Episcopalians. And so when you go on Pine Ridge today, there's Episcopalians and there's Catholics. Yeah. And that's kind of a result of this. Sure. Of, of Washington bureaucracy and Red Cloud himself, interesting. Uh, deciding who who should be on board or who should. Be and so you there. feel Red Cloud decides being a, a really great leader for his time. It seems like a lot of his key moments shape the state that we know it today. Yes, uh, it had a large part in shaping that. Um, first, the Great Sioux Reservation, the treaty that mm-hmm. was then uh, broken time and time again, and the. And the politics of working with the Indian agents and how um, the Oglala could make their way in the future, given the situation they were in. I think part of being a, re- a leader, you know, is to be a realist. You have yeah, to. Yeah. You can't, you know, be a Potemkin village sure. uh, of, of in, the, in your scenery. You, you have, have to, to play with the cards You have to know the dealt. lay of the yeah. land. Right. You have to play the cards you dealt. And I think um, both he and Spotted Tail played the cards they were dealt pretty well. And I'm curious, uh, you know, a big theme on this show has been how often leaders are actually uh, nudged or pulled or asked or pushed to mm-hmm. lead. They don't necessarily always want to. Mm-hmm. So in that time, how would someone like Red Cloud, this great veteran combat warrior, be chosen to lead? How would he have rose, risen through the ranks? Yeah, that's that. you have to know a great deal about Oglala and Lakota culture, I think, to know how he was chosen. I mean, certainly the credibility of being a warrior. Yeah. Being a successful hunter, being able to provide for your tribe, um, and also it's a consultant. Uh, you consult, so they they make decisions based on um, can everybody kind of do this? They never would take an up sure. or down vote. Yeah, was, you know? they're so not going to put your name down to yeah. yes or no, and then. But they do know that if if we put somebody in a frame of mind where there's they are they disagree with what the crowd would like to, what the most of the leaders in the tribe would like to do they can take their own family and leave mm. and so you have to, you, a person like red cloud have to kind of constantly weigh okay what what's best what can them? what's the best for people to do what's the most realistic outcome given our situation that we're in and how can i avoid losing 
parts of tribe, yeah. parts of the tribe who will just wander off. Yeah, or, so what's popular, but what's also right. Or, right. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's a lot of um, consultation. There's a lot of conversation. The language itself is not very clear or direct. Um, it's very uh, metaphorical. It's very conceptual. It's roundabout. They they would never. I mean, maybe in a combat situation, you know, Red Cloud might say, "Hey, you need to go here and do this." But other than that, when they're talking about these kind of broader political issues or cultural things with how to get along with the United States government, it's not going to be an up and down vote. It's not going to be a a, a direct issue. It's going to be constant conversations that are constantly occurring. Okay. Interesting. And how has the historian, have you felt, how has a red cloud sort of, um, how has he fared in history? Because I think as opposed to crazy mm-hmm. horse or the person we're going to talk about next, I don't feel like I mm-hmm. hear about red cloud as much. Yeah. You, I mean, red cloud, uh, dies natural causes. Uh, it used to be an old man and, and, and helps his tribe mediate all of the changes that are occurring around them. Um, Crazy Horse uh, and Sitting Bull is kind of a different deal, but um, uh, Spotted Tail, Spotted Tail, uh, uh, these guys, uh, well, Spotted Tail dies out of an old argument he had with another tribal member. Oh, wow. um, Who decides that that's enough. I'm not putting up with Spotted Tail anymore and murders him. Okay. Um, Red Cloud uh, lives a long life and doesn't have that kind of. Stab in the back that happens this to him, big, yeah, right? Yeah, he, big ending. He um, he's able to keep everybody on board. Now, once you leave the Oglala, um, he certainly had his arguments with Sitting Bull. He certainly probably had his arguments with other members of the tribes or who led other aspects of the broader Lakota. But uh, he kept everybody on board within his within his group. Well, I know um, you get to speak to the group, the Leadership South Dakota group, which mm-hmm. we've had Rick Melmer here on the show. I uh, got to participate in that program, and, and it's so important to understand the different corners of our state and how these right. individuals in this history, to your point about you know whether it's rhyming or sounds the same, shape the modern state we live in today. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. Let's move on to the next one. You've mentioned him, but you also mm-hmm. said Sitting Bull being mm-hmm. a very key leader in South Dakota history. Yeah, Sitting Bull is, is just probably the most interesting South Dakotan you would ever run across. Okay. I can't think of anybody more interesting than him. He has similar kind of um, credibility with the hunk papa as Red Cloud does with the Oglala, rises through the ranks. He's also far more, um, I mean, Red Cloud was a spiritual guy, but Sambol is a, clearly a spiritual leader and not just for the hunk papa, his band, but the broader Lakota band as well as Cheyenne and okay. Arapaho that would, he he would uh, participate in these um, sun dances that was yep. a part of their religious practice, and um, from those dreams that he would have, uh, get, seek uh, get guidance for um, future challenges that he would face. And so, this this in his uh, culture and at the time. Even before there was a lot of contact with the United States government, he had a lot of credibility for being a spiritual leader as well as, mm, as a combat, right. combat leader. And um, I think uh, probably the best book on on uh, Sitting Bull is, is by Robert Utley, okay. who's been around a long time, has written a lot of books about Western uh, history in the United States. But 
he's got a biography on Sitting Bull that's that's really quite good and, and really well written. He was a historian for the Park Service for. Oh, okay. He's still around. I think he's in his nineties, but the, hmm. the book is the book is quite good. Um, and there's other scholars that uh, another gentleman was in the archives a few months ago, and he's going to come back and do some more stuff too because he. He realizes that to really understand the Lakota, you need to understand their religion, and he thinks that's been given a lot of short shrift, at least in sure. um, English language uh, publications, and so he's going to come back and do that. And ultimately, that's um, uh, the ghost dance, and the situation around the ghost dance is what kind of uh, brings about Sitting Bull's demise, is um, the ghost dance is uh, seen by the United States government, and more specifically, certain um indian agents in um cheyenne uh rivers uh, or standing rock where sitting bull is is very suspicious about what is going on yeah and didn't really understand native religion at all um if it, if they had spent 30 minutes trying to really honestly ascertain what the ghost dance was they would see a lot of christian uh, ideas themes, yeah. and themes in it. And the leader of the ghost dance was a Wavoka gentleman who lived in um, uh, New Mexico and, and Utah. And he would always preach. Sent a, uh, well, he would tell um, American Indians, send your kids to school hmm. and farm your farms and work your ranches and be peaceful. Um, nevertheless, there were, there was a fear that this, this kind of, crazy thing was going on and was going to erupt into another uh, outbreak or uh, uprising or whatever. And so a brand new agent on Pine Ridge um, asks Washington for the army to come in during the ghost dance. during the ghost dance. Yeah. And so at the time now, South Dakota has been a state for a few months. Oh, geez. There's no, um, well, there's, there's federal troops, um, at uh, 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 Fort Rock, Fort Thompson, and uh, what was called Fort Sully, I think, had been closed. And so there's troops that are brought back in over the railways up into Rapid City and from Chicago because the agent has asked for this. Hmm. And so the fall of 1890 is kind of um, a very fearful time, at least as far as the. Uh, the Indian agents are concerned on Standing Rock and on Pine Ridge. And again, had they just kind of understood the culture mm. a little bit better, they could have kept the army out of it. And because when you bring the army in, you know, you have soldiers and yeah, then, you know, they're when that soldiers are bringing their weapons, they're, and they're armed. Yep. They're, they're armed. They're and, thinking what I'm, I'm here to do. Right, one job. I'm here to do one job. I'm going yeah. into combat. Yeah. And it's not combat. Um, maybe a discussion first, <laughs> right? And maybe a discussion first. I was, I was shocked. Uh, I was looking through some records in the archives several weeks ago now, and a young first lieutenant, John J. Pershing, was in one of these units that was brought into the state. Hmm. And he is not at Wounded Knee, but he's near there when um, the Seventh Cavalry. He's not in the Seventh Cavalry; he's in the Sixth U.S. Cavalry. And when the Seventh Cavalry opens fire. And he can hear the shooting. He's that close. He can hear the shooting. And he's there a few hours later um, among the rest of his cavalry unit. And then in January, or no, in February of 1891, so not even two full months later, 
he has, he's organized a group of Oglala scouts. So there's all these young men hmm. in U.S. Army uniforms with weapons. Uh, First Lieutenant John J. Pershing. And he's training them in U.S. Army tactics to wow. be reconnaissance and scout uh, uh, troops. Interesting. And you think, yeah, so you, you can't go from Wounded Knee, which is a massacre of 400-some uh, men, women, and children, and then go into a straight line of what you think relations should be today um, or how they are today. Without also seeing all this other stuff that was going on, like Lieutenant Pershing putting all these Oglala in, in U.S. Army uniforms and turning yeah. them into giving them, here's your rifle, let's, let's yeah. learn some basic tactics. And you already know, I, under, I appreciate your great warriors, Yeah, yeah. right? So let's, how, how do we use that for uh, a common good here in the United States Army? And that guy signs up. Yeah, and that certainly shapes tensions yeah. and relationships for right. sure. Yeah, right. Interesting. Okay, so you you called Sitting Bull one of the most interesting South Dakotans. Is yeah. there something quirky about him, or some tall, well, tall tales? Or uh, he goes, you know, he he leads his band of um, uh, some Minikanju and some Hunkpapa into Canada to get out of being um, chased down by the by the United States Army. Spends a couple winters in Canada, and on the threat of starvation comes back to the United States is in a, in essentially a POW status for about a year and a half. And then I'm not quite sure all the details, but Buffalo Bill Cody mm. uh, says, come on to my wild West show. So he joined for several months. He's in uh, Buffalo Bill Cody's wild West show. Yeah. He goes to Europe playing an authentic yeah. tribal leader. And yeah. he learns that there's this celebrity business is kind of cool. Uh-huh. I can, Sign my name, I can make a mark on a piece of paper, and all these white people think that this is amazing. And people are paying him for his autograph. And so he does it for a while, and after a while it's not sitting right with him. So then he goes back up to what becomes, what by that time had become Standing Rock, where he was born, where we think he was born, and where he said he was born, and um, and tries to make his life there. Um so I think, he, he, you know, the fact that you go back and forth between these two cultures, you try to navigate them. He was was doing pretty well in the Wild West show. Sure. At least from a, a, a Western perspective of things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could have stayed with that his whole, the rest of his life and yeah. made good money. And, um, but he didn't want to do that. And so then he went, came back to what was now South Dakota and. And tried to figure out, as the great quote says, uh, "Let us put us put our minds together and um, make a make a better future for our children." I, I butchered that quote a little bit, but he he says that at one point in his negotiations with Washington. Huh. Um, so he's trying to navigate his way through, uh, and and his celebrity, I think, was something that maybe in the end he just didn't feel right about. Yeah, and so he also has a sense of himself. And I think that, again, it's a lesson for leadership. You have a sense of yourself, who you are, what your talents are. Yeah, and you don't let that change and, you, right? Like right, the spotlight. And and the- yeah, and while there could be an ethical issue, there's also kind of a sense of, you know, I'm from, I'm Origin. not from, I'm not a showman, right? Mm-hmm. When I hunted buffalo, it was for the purpose of feeding my tribe. It was for religious purposes. It was for these, these great uh, purposes that furthered my, my family, my cause, my civilization. It wasn't for 
signatures yeah. and celebrity. And fascinating that there was already that type of road show kind of. Um, oh, P.T. Barnum, Bailey Circus. You know, just yeah. year, not yeah. that long after. I mean, even during yeah. while it was still going, that culture. You know, now I get it. Right. And, of course, we kind of wash history and we, right. we, we kind of dramatize. But, right. like, at that time, he, could, he was living in both worlds simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's been a profound fascination and deservedly so, I think, with American Indians, um, well, since 1607, when, yeah. when the first Virginia colonist comes to Jamestown, you know, there's just kind of, well, I've heard of these uh, other people. Europe specifically, yeah. um, uh, that, that it's the, like Germany, I've heard for, in particular, and you would know probably based yeah. on tourism. And, yes. And- uh, I've been in several bookstores in, in Germany and France and Italy and Britain, um, Historians of their own nation, so German historians writing books in Germany, uh, in German, for Germans about Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull is a big seller in, in Europe. <sighs> wow, that is and, fascinating. And I, probably in, in Japan and China as well. Hmm. Great stuff. Uh, I know we could go on forever on these mm-hmm. individuals, but we'll keep going. We'll okay. go to the 20th century. Sure. Um, and, of course, a person that I see uh, probably once a month when I walk by his statue at the uh, Sioux Falls Airport. Oh, yeah. Joe Foss. Joe Foss. You mentioned him. Yeah. Um, Joe Foss, I've been toying with several years with writing a biography of Joe uh, and grew up in just north of town here on a farm that's now being developed into a um, part of, it'll become a part of northern side of Sioux Falls proper, Sioux Falls City proper. Oh, sure. Foss Fields, I think, is the name of the development. That's where where the farm was and where the um, windmill was that he would climb up as a boy and look out from the windmill and take his saxophone up there and <laughs> play his sax on the on the windmill and where he fell off and where he would um, oh. uh, uh, you know kind of gain an appreciation for what a perspective up and up, up in the off air. the ground yep. looks like uh his dad takes him to see charles Lindbergh. charles Lindbergh came after yeah he came to renner airport and Thousands of people came to Renner Airport to see oh, wow. Charles Lindbergh. Uh, still an airport in Renner? Uh, I don't know if that airfield still exists. It may know. have been kind of subsumed by Sioux Falls Airport, now Joe Foss Field. Joe Foss Field, yeah. Um, but Joe then, uh, he thinks to himself, I'm going to be a bigger pilot than Charles Lindbergh someday. Hmm. And uh, and that turns out to be true. He He's not a very good student. He kind of bops around Sioux Falls College, now University of Sioux Falls, and and that doesn't work out, so he winds up getting a bunch of odd jobs in Sioux Falls, and he boxes for a while, and kind of oh, funny. And he makes some money boxing. He gets he gets put on the mat a lot. Um, <laughs> he tries Augie. That doesn't work out much better. And ultimately, uh, a friend says, "Come play." I think they they kind of recruited him to play football for USD. Okay. So he gets his he gets his bachelor's degree from USD after several years of of uh, attempting attempting. His brother takes over the farm. His dad is killed in a lightning storm when he's 17. He's coming back. Oh uh, there's a thunderstorm rolling through, and his dad comes out to the field and says, you need to come back in. And he's driving the tractor down the gravel road, and he finds his dad had been struck by lightning. Oh, no way. So the car is there, and his dad is laying next to the car. Wow. Um, so then the family is put in, and then the depression happens, and, you know, it's, it's not an easy life. Um, so he and his brother and his mother try to make away from it. He gets, his mom really wants him to get that college degree though. So he winds up getting that. And then as World War II is starting, he had been in a program and was getting his wings. So he had his Marine Corps aviation rating. 
Um, in fact, he'd been in long enough to where they said he was too old to be a fighter pilot. They wanted to make him a transport or recon pilot. Oh, or something. okay. Too old, huh? But you know, you can't keep Joe down. And when Joe's <laughs> Joe's decided he's so he has he works his magic and he has some buddies who pull some strings and he gets he gets into a fighter unit and he winds up going across and he, and getting in Guadalcanal. Just as Guadalcanal had been going for a few weeks by the time he gets there, but um, over the course of see from October of forty two when he shoots down his first plane to March of forty three, he shoots down twenty six Japanese aircraft. Wow. And for a, until about late '44, he's the leading ace in hmm. the United States. Um, so uh, he comes back home, and uh, the, the powers that be in the War Department or in the Pentagon and the Navy Department don't want him going back because they're afraid he's going to be killed. Sure, um, that ultimately happens to other high-ranking aces; they get they get killed, and so. They put him on a tour to sell war bonds, and, oh, and no he goes way. to factories, and he cheers people up. And so he says, he becomes really, sort of a celebrity. Yeah. Uh, he hates that stuff. He's not very good at it. You okay. can you can YouTube these films that he's on. You, there's some, okay. There's some out there with him visiting these factories. Not, One, not too sister, charismatic? Or? Well, it's, you're, you, he's, he's reading from a script. Sure. You know? He's 27, maybe 26, 27 years old. Well, that's hard he's to get his, old of war veteran at 27 you're not very right old. yeah he's he's so he's dealing with the celebrity he's dealing with the fame and he and and when the war's over oh by the way he goes back to the pacific in 45 and charles Lindbergh comes out to um a, kind of be a consultant oh, no on way. how to get so some, they meet each other so yeah he invites him and Lindbergh had been kind of pro um well, he, Lindbergh was an isolationist and had talked about how we, oh. we shouldn't go to war with against the Germans, and he was kind of pro-German during the during the run up to the war. So his reputation really takes a dive. Sure. And Joe Foss thinks, hey, uh, in fact, the papers are giving him a hard time when there's pictures of him and Lindbergh in the Pacific, and he says, hey, he's here serving his country. What are you doing? Yeah. You know. So he's like, all that stuff is in the past. He's He's now doing this as he should, and I'm glad to have him here. He knows yeah. a lot about aviation. Yeah, let's take and his perspective. Let's, yeah, let's keep perspective on things. So, And I think that was, Joe kind of had the idea about people, if you were good at your job and you weren't, you weren't boastful uh, and you were, you were pol- polite and civil and, again, you were professional and you were excellent at your work, what your politics was didn't, didn't matter. Yeah. So... He goes on to do a wide variety of things, including being two-term governor yeah. of the state. He's kind of, he kind of starts the what today we call the governor's hunt. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, that was that was his uh, baby to begin with. It's very different now, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's that was his idea. And um, then he goes on to um, he start he starts Raven. Doesn't he, really he he create while he's governor he creates this kind of economic development was a big thing for him. He didn't yeah. want to. You know, if the farm economy got depressed again, sure. you didn't want uh, kind of a one-note Johnny of that South Dakota's economy was. Yeah, true. He wanted to add some things to the portfolio, right? So how, what can we do? And and as governor, he tried to do as many things as he could to kind of broaden the economic base of the state. Wow. So uh, aviation was something that was near and dear to him and uh, kind of helps create the conditions that bring Raven to the state. Uh, or allow them to get going. And then, so his first job after being governor is 
being a vice president at Raven. He's kind of their strategic communications guy. No way. And he's down in Arizona on a business trip for Raven and the the uh, football league commissioners who couldn't get into the NFL were deciding they were going to form their own league and they interview him for the job of being a commissioner. And he's, he says, okay. And so he does that for six and a half part. years. Yeah. He was the commissioner of the AFL before it merged. Wow. And uh, so um, he, I think he saw the writing on the wall that the NFL commissioner, when they merged was going to get the, the, be the commissioner of the entire league. Sure. So he kind of bowed out, but uh, he, he very much was, was responsible for the television contracts, the radio contracts, yeah. signing players that won Heisman trophies and getting them into the AFL yeah. and really setting that league up to be in a position where, you know, they could, they could, com- they could compete on the field and off the field yeah. for the marketing and the advertising dollars with the NFL. Yeah. Cause that was like probably the Arizona Cardinals. And I think the chiefs come from there. Yeah. The chiefs but- come from there. The, uh, let's see, uh, the Packers. Oh no, not the Packers. Packers and the NFC. Um, the Raiders. So the chiefs, the Raiders, the Dallas, uh, oh, okay. or, uh, there was a Texas team. And Arizona, I think, had a team. Uh, Miami would start a team. So, hmm. yeah, you've plumbed the depths of my NFL history, but <laughs> knowledge. But uh, yeah, it's okay. All the other details yeah. are quite great. Yeah. Um, so he led both. You know, I think of leaders who lead by action, just being in in the aircraft and on the battlefield. Right. right. Um, you know, lead by doing, but then also led in the capacity of where you are voted on by your peers and chosen to yeah. step up and lead in a governor yeah. or commissioner yeah. role. Right. He's, he started. He started the Air National Guard. I mean, as between um, when he got out of the out of the service, he and a buddy uh, prevailed on. And you know, when you have the Medal of Honor, that opens a lot of doors. Sure, yeah. <laughs> as you can imagine. Man, yeah. So when you have a Medal of Honor recipient in South Dakota who's active in South Dakota politics and then becomes governor uh, and saying, "Hey, we should have the Cold War is on, mm. and we need to have fighter cover in this part of the, this neck of the woods." Um, we need to gin up a guard unit here. Mm-hmm. And the Eisenhower administration is thinking about how do we keep costs manageable while still prevailing in the Cold War. And so setting up guard units with fighters was a part of that mix. And so we kind of prevailed to get the guard unit started. Um, his time as governor was, was I would say, pretty uh, successful in a lot of ways. He gets reelected. Um, he tries to go to Congress. That doesn't work out. He gets beat by none other than George McGovern. Yeah. Um, McGovern said later that that was the easiest race he ever had because he didn't think Foss was really serious about it. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah. I, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. I think Foss wasn't interested in going to Washington. But it felt like it was the next thing. But to it, do, yeah, probably, well, yeah. GOP leaders talked him into running because yeah. he had name recognition. And yeah. He could win. He could beat McGovern. And, um, yeah. People like that always fascinate me. These leaders who it seems like no matter what they end up doing, they just are. They have to lead, or or, or they're 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 asked to lead, right? Whether yeah. it be in a, a professional football league or in, yeah. a, in a fighter pilot, you know, right. it's just it's fascinating that some right. people just always find themselves in those spots, right? Well, he's not afraid to take risks, right? Um, he didn't become a wealthy man. Uh, Foss didn't. He, he was kind of one job to the next, you know, like any entrepreneur, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. You kind of see what pays off and ride that as long as you can, and then. Uh, if it doesn't pay off, you move on to the next thing. Yeah, fascinating. There's some great lessons there. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do one more. Sure. Uh, and I asked you to pull one that was maybe uh, maybe one that 
I mean, I learned things about all three of these people, but I definitely heard <laughs> of them. Um, but you mentioned that South Dakota also has a, a, a an economist who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Nobel Prize for Economics. Or Nobel yeah. Prize for yep. Economics, yeah. Yes, Theodore Schultz. Uh, grew up near uh, Arlington. And uh, in the 20s and 30s when he went to high school, he had an eighth grade education. And he went to uh, South Dakota State College, as it was at the time, okay. for a summer event. And somebody somebody said, you need to go to college. Why aren't you going to college? And uh, I don't have a high school degree. So, well, let's get you in the high school program here at State. Okay. Uh, ben Rifle did the similar thing. Okay, yeah. Uh, they kind of topped out. and This was in Brookings? Uh, yes. Okay. So he wasn't too far to go from his farm near Arlington to yep. go to Brookings to finish his high school. And then they said, okay, now, now you're going to go to college. Now you go right into college. He majored in economics, and then he went on to get his PhD. And he... He teaches at a prestigious um, University of Chicago's prestigious economics department, um, and he's kind of among that crowd of Milton Friedman and all these other oh, guys. Uh, he he is fascinated by how farmers can add value to their land by their know-how. You know, okay. he's observing this as a kid and growing up in South Dakota. He sees, um, and of course, after World War II where so much of Europe is devastated from the war and there's tons of uh, today we would say grant money mm. or a loan, uh, you know, low interest loans with the Marshall plan and these other mm-hmm. Op- mm-hmm. Uh, opportunities to get Europe and parts of Africa back on their feet. And he's trying to go into these places and think, now what is the best, how do we marry the talent to what is there and how can we bring some, technical training, agricultural know-how to what they already have in order to get the most out of what, what the natural environment would provide. Yeah, so it's not just about how the quality of your land. It's also right. the quality of the farmer. Right, and he yeah. said, as we talked about earlier in, the, in this conversation, where nobody thought this great American desert right, would ever amount True. to anything. Yep. Right? Didn't take that long. Didn't it? take that long that under decent conditions and with a lot of know-how, uh, you can make this land pretty productive. And mm-hmm. so he's, he's seen all that. He lived through the dirty 30s. He saw how now the end of the 40s and 50s, the 20s prior to that. He knows that you can have an ecological calamity. You can still add value to what's going on around you. So he coins the term human capital. Hmm. Wow. Uh, that comes from a South Dakota State yeah. alumni, a kid from Arlington. Go no Jacks. Uh, who, who coins that term, and he goes on to win the Nobel Prize in Economics. Huh, no way. Uh, again, he's just just a, a smart guy who observes what's going on around him. And, uh, you know, a lot of us try to find the value in what we do, right, and explain the value to a customer. Yeah. Um, he is his being able to explain in a very um, – for an academic audience, for a scholarly audience, nevertheless, we can go to certain places of the world and help them add value to the – to the devastation that was wrought to them by the Second World War and get them back on their feet and come up with all the mathematical formulas you would need to in order to sort out the value of that. Yeah, wow. Makes me think of like, uh, you know, Billy Bean and, and Moneyball, the book about like how to, how to look at baseball players in a yes. different way, right? Yeah, he gets on the, base, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. extract value. If he's a good data. hitter, how come he ain't hitting so good? Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> it's more important that we get on base because if yeah. you get on base, you score runs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so... His work certainly still very abundant in terms of economic theory and, and the idea of human capital. Right, right. Um, 
Representative Ring, who's retired, well, he's no longer in the state house, but uh, he was on the education committee a couple of years ago, and and he's an econ professor at USD. Okay. And I mentioned uh, Schultz in a, uh, I guess I was providing some testimony about something in education. And he came up to me later and he said, people need to know more about Ted Schultz. Thanks for bringing him up. Cool. So, so as an economist, he appreciated what. Got to share. Yeah. yeah. Here we go. We're yep. Tell these stories here. Yep. That's fascinating. Uh, very cool. Well, let's finish with, um, you mentioned, you know, Foss being one governor. Is there, is there a governor that uh, when you think of, and I know there's several books about the different governors, you can go to Pierre and see them mm-hmm. all on the, on the walk, which is so cool. Right. The different statues. Right. Is, do you have a favorite or maybe an underappreciated? Well, governor? I, I think I'm beginning to, I always thought Norbeck had a, a wonderful vision for the state and for the development of the Black Hills in a way that respected the terrain and the, Ecology of the Black Hills. Um, his hard work and perseverance as a state legislature, at, at later state legislator, as a governor and as a U.S. senator, gave us Custer State Park, hmm. um, the Needles Highway, uh, and so much of the development there that's there was done um, in an effort to make it enjoyable, make it accessible, and make it enjoyable and. He was, he was hoping in a way that didn't diminish the natural surroundings and the beauty of the place. Yeah. So uh, I think that's, when you think of what you can do as a governor or as a president or any political leader, if you, it's a pretty short time, you know, two years as a governor, maybe you get reelected in his case. Yeah. Then you get termed out and then you go to the Senate in his case. What can you do in that role to, um, that's kind of a long lasting impact. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, in my mind, Norbeck kind of leads the league in how that, uh, hmm. in a visible way in which it impacted. When I think about it, in those examples, today they seem so obvious, but I bet, I'm guessing back then they were not. No. And you know. can you imagine now, he has to, he comes up with this crazy idea, we're going to start Custer State Park in aspects of Custer County, and I'm going to birth it out of state school lands that are no longer kind of making sense as a revenue generator for for education in the mm-hmm. state. So we're going to land swap uh, the state school lands with different parts of the U.S. Forestry Service and different other parts of federal land. And I'm going to kind of put all this together in Custer County, and it will be a great state park because it has these kind of anchor sites. And then we're going to bring these buffalo in, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure... I'll have to look up what was the vote on that. It, it's kind of hard to track because it's done in so many different phases sure, it's like piece by over piece, yeah. a course of Whether 15 maybe years. Maybe it was not that popular at first. Right. And, of course, people who live there are very suspicious. What's what's he doing? Why is he? Why is this uh, going to go to the feds now? Why is that going to stay state? What's Why is he building this road? What's, what's, uh, what's well, going to happen? You talk about Foss moving, wanting the state to be not just a one-trick pony of agriculture. Now, mm-hmm. of course, tourism is one of our largest industries. Right, right. And all that's set in motion by Norbeck. Yeah. Or a lot of that's set in motion, certainly in the Black Hills. Well, this was so much fun, Ben. Thanks for coming and sharing yeah, your knowledge. Uh, I know um, you share a lot of these stories on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, but you've also written a few books. So tell us if we want to. Uh, yeah. What would you uh, recommend well, thanks starting? For the, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to plug a book. I'm going to um, plug yourself. Uh my my book, uh, one book, um, is on how Eisenhower used guerrilla warfare as a as a part of the plan and overlord in the invasion of France. Hmm. So something very different than what I'm doing now. Yeah, 
But uh, when I was in the Air Force, they, they, they needed me to cover some military history and some European history for them. So I kind of merged the two and did a World War II topic. Wow. And uh, talked about how I, the book is called Eisenhower's Guerrillas, the Jedbergs, the Maquis, and the Liberation of France. Very cool. And it was out in 2016. We well, don't have to listen to this episode long to, to realize you know your stuff. And so thank you for sharing with all of us today. It's fun You're to welcome. have you. Good to be here. Take care. All right, everyone. That was Dr. Ben Jones from the South Dakota Historical Society. Thanks so much for coming, for sharing your wisdom, and for giving us some anecdotes and some stories on these great South Dakota leaders and how they've shaped our state today. That I just loved it. Remember, we drop episodes of the Lead More Podcast every other Thursday. You can find them at leadmorepodcast.com or wherever you subscribe to your podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. Take care and be well.